please take your Bibles and open up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. As we look at the first nine verses of this chapter. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, the word of the Lord reads, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Father, we come before you again. We need you, Lord, and we realize that it's only by your hand that you work and do anything. So, God, we ask for your help as we dive into your word. Give us understanding, but not only understanding, but understanding in such a way that impacts our life and our living. So, Lord, I pray you would grant us that clarity this morning by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's been often said that nothing in life is free. No matter the signage, the, the advertisement, or deal, free is an illusion, even a business that, that gives away free merchandise is, is not going to go into the red to give you something free. I mean, they're going to cover their overhead. There's usually some incentive or motive behind anything that's free. Now, call me skeptical, but it's true. <laughs> if someone were to come to your door, take for example, if someone were to come to your door this afternoon after church and say, hey, sir, madam, I want to offer you something free. What's your immediate response? Guards up, right? No, ain't nothing free. Get off my doorstep. Like, I don't want a free subscription and then pay $50 a month for the rest of my life. I'm not getting locked in. There's nothing free. I'm sure we've all seen many signage, many advertisements, free, 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 but nothing is truly free. I mean, I'm even sure all of us received an email by now from a foreign prince wanting to give us $6 million for free. I hope you declined it. But this is why the message of the gospel stands in stark contrast to every other religion or belief. Because it is the, it's the truth and the only truth that, that teaches that salvation is a free gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You don't deserve it. It's free. No, no, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. But this is something I know we know well. But sadly, it's not always the case. And sadly... It hasn't always been the case. Case in point, the Galatian churches. Paul's writing here to to a group of churches in the southern region of Galatia, including Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. These are churches there that he founded during his first missionary journey. You can read about in Acts 13 and 14. 
And so by now, when Paul's writing this letter, they, they received the gospel, they embraced it. But as Paul's writing this letter, as you're probably already familiar, that he's encountering the reality that false teachers are coming in and teaching a different gospel than the one they received. Primarily that that one can be saved not just by faith, but by works of the law. And Paul, aware, aware of this, he is preaching, or excuse me, writing this letter to the Galatian churches to address this central heresy that is infecting that church. So the central issue throughout this entire letter to the churches written in Galatia, the central issue there is justification. Justification. A fancy word, we, we, we've heard it many times, justification, but all it is simply is, it's an act of God's free grace where one is forgiven of all his sins, past, present, and future, and he's declared righteous before God by faith. That that's essentially what justification is. It's removing of the sinful debt, but also giving and granting of the righteousness, and it's received by faith. That no one can be justified apart from receiving that free gift by faith. Phil, if ever you're going to preach on justification, you have to quote Martin Luther at least once, right? Luther, he, speaking of this, this very topic, this very issue of justification, Martin Luther wrote that the article of justification is the master and the prince, the Lord, the ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. That Luther understood how central this doctrine is of justification. How can one be declared righteous before a holy God? This, that's the importance of this doctrine. And you can even see in Paul's writing here, pay attention to Paul's intensity as he writes this in the verses we just read. In verse one, you foolish Galatians, harsh language, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's crucial for us to understand It's crucial for us to understand that these are high stakes here. High stakes. For, for, for Paul to write in such intensity, you, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, this is some serious stuff going on here. You mess with the doctrine of justification, and you mess with the core gospel message. That, that messing up the doctrine of justification is not just about error or mistake. Messing up this doctrine is apostasy. If you exit the truth here, you exit the faith. You can't mess this up. That's how essential it is, which explains Paul's tone for us. This is important to him because it's important to God and it should be important to us. Paul's fear was not that they were literally bewitched as if witchcraft were upon them, but, but rather they were being influenced by this false teaching that directly contradicted the gospel. So in these first nine verses here, we see that, that, that Galatians 3, 1 through 9, defend the truth that your righteous standing before God is by faith alone. In these nine verses, it defends the truth that your righteous standing before God is by faith alone. And it's defended here from three different angles, experientially, historically, and biblically, we'll see. That he's defending this, this case from three different angles, experientially, historically, and then biblically. 
Now, it's important for us to understand as we, as we send to this text that this is not just a teaching that we, we talk about, that we, we mention once a year when we talk about the, the Reformation on October 31st. This is really about the Christian life. This is of prime importance for us, that we must walk away with the understanding, how is one justified? In other words, how are you justified? If you were to leave this room and die today, why would you be in the presence of God? For the unbeliever, this is a hope message for anyone who would receive it. For the believer, this grants and girds, gives you the confidence that Paul and God designed for you to have, that you must have the proper understanding of what he's saying here. Let's look at this first angle experientially. As chapter 3 begins, Paul begins to defend this truth by first appealing to their own salvation experience. Like, realizing that they are encountering error, realizing that the, the fact that they are faced with, with a false gospel that's being seeped in their midst, he starts to defend this from their own experience. Now, obviously, one's experience isn't authoritative by any means, but he points to their own experience with regard to the work of the Spirit. In other words, if this issue is coming up in terms of justification by faith alone, let's look at your own life, believer, He's speaking to believers here, Christians here. He's saying, let's start with you, your own experience. What did you experience when you came to faith? Was it through works of the law? Or was it receiving the Spirit by hearing with faith? What did you encounter in your daily life when you started following Christ? When he opened up your eyes to the mar- his marvelous grace? When he transformed your life, gave you new affections, new desires, new tastes? What, what did you encounter? And by presenting their own experience, he really highlights how foolish they are to have succumbed to such a wicked teaching. I mean, because notice in the first three verses here, he calls them foolish twice. <laughs> you foolish Galatians. And then in verse three again, are you so foolish? <laughs> I think he's trying to get at something here. But he's not calling them foolish in the sense of being mentally deficient. But, but he's rather saying foolish in terms of being mentally lazy and careless. That it's not about their mental capacity, but about their attentiveness, their lack of attentiveness. But with what? That they're being careless, they're being lazy with what? Look how he follows it up at the end of verse 1. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly displayed as being crucified? He's talking about their foolishness and understanding the very fact of the gospel. That if you're foolish in this regard, what's going on here? He uses Christ's crucifixion, his death, his crucifixion on the cross as the basis here. You saw the gospel proclaimed clearly before your eyes when I came to preach it to you during my first missionary journey. When other apostles, when you heard Peter preach it, that you saw the gospel clearly portrayed, clearly proclaimed. He says publicly portrayed in the sense of it's almost like the idea of a public notice of being displayed publicly like a huge billboard. There was no confusion about what this gospel message was. You heard it directly from my lips, from my own lips. You heard this gospel message. So what are they being foolish about? This clear message that you heard? There's no mistake that you received, that you embraced? And now you're so foolish, so careless enough to disregard that central teaching I brought to you. Like, are you that foolish? You heard it clearly. That this was publicly portrayed without any ambiguity, without any confusion. That Christ was crucified. 
And if Christ was crucified, what does that say about you? What does that say about your hope? What does that say about anyone's hope of being saved? That they understood the power of this. That's why he says at the beginning of the end of the last chapter in chapter 2 that I have been crucified with Christ. That there is there are innumerable implications of this. Just think about all the implications of what it means that Christ not only was crucified, but believer, you have been crucified with him, dead to sin, dead to its power, dead to the law. Galatians, you heard this. You know this completely. So how foolish can you be to know that truth, the magnificent truth of Christ dying in your place, and you walk away to something so foolish? Careless. There is no question for them the significance of Christ's death and resurrection meant. They were saved by that message. They believed that message, but now they were embracing this teaching that was coming in that was faith now plus works. Yet Christ crucified plus works. Christ crucified, in this case, plus circumcision. Like how could you, how could you correlate those two? One person said it this way, that a supplanted, excuse me, a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. A supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. You add anything to Christ's work and you spoil it. That you can't add nothing to the finished and completed work of Christ. That if you add anything to it, it is therefore no, no good for you. Now the sad part here was that Paul wasn't just writing, as I said, to unbelievers. He was writing to the churches, churches that were embracing this heresy, this gospel-centered heresy, and mainly from the influence of Judaizers. These Judaizers were were early influences in Christianity, and they tried to force believers who were from non-Jewish backgrounds to conform to Jewish rituals and laws. That these Judaizers were coming in and saying, who who are these Gentiles coming to faith here? Wait, didn't the promises start with us? Now, who, who, who are these people now? Okay, if, if you want to follow our God, you got to look like us. And now not look like Christ. No, Christ, yes, he died on the cross, but now you need to do this as well. That these Judaizers were coming in and perverting the pure gospel message. And these tensions started early in the church as the Gentiles were coming to faith. You can read about it for yourself in Acts chapters 11 through 15 about just different tensions and different biases against Gentiles. Because who are these people, these foreign people, these pagans that we read about in the Old Testament? Now they're coming to faith? And so now, specifically in this letter, the Judaizers were coming in and implementing circumcision to the Gentiles. That now if you want to be one of us, that you must be circumcised. And, and Paul rightly refutes this. And by the end of the letter, it says that if you want, want, want to adhere to this law, that you should go all the way and emasculate yourself. That's how serious he takes it. That you are perverting this pure doctrine. Now one thing for us, we have to understand that the danger of any false teaching is that it really traps the person in that false thinking and false teaching and has implications on their life. False teaching is no small matter here. That false teaching, it perverts truth. And when it perverts the truth, it impacts your way of living and in everything else. And these believers were greatly impacted by this. Now, we should never think that we are so confident, so knowledgeable, so reformed in our faith that we can never be victim to this as well. 
that if these were churches who heard directly from the mouth of Paul the gospel and went away from it, what makes you think you're any different? That we can be prey to this. This is a serious matter. That's why it's in our canon. That we are not above this. So Paul addresses this first experientially, appealing to their own experience. You see in verse 2 that this is, he says, this is how he begins. This is the only thing I want to hear from you. I love how he phrases this. This is the only thing I want to hear from you. Like, he doesn't want to hear nothing from their mouths. It's almost like a, a, a child in trouble. Like, shut your mouth. Just tell me, did you do it or not? Like, I don't want to hear nothing else from you. This is the only thing I want to hear from you, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by hearing with faith? And you notice here in this, these next few verses here, it's, it's not really he's looking for, like, a real answer from them. It's like he already he knows the answer. They know the answer. So he just gives it to them, a rapid-fire questioning. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You get the point here. He's appealing to their own experience, and they know by their own testimony, when they heard the gospel, they were saved, hearing by, with faith, and they were transformed. They did nothing to receive it. They were Gentiles, right? He, he begins here, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Gentiles here are not having the Mosaic law. They knew they didn't have to adhere to no Mosaic law. There was no circumcision. There was no dietary restrictions they had to conform to in order to, to be saved. They heard the power of the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, that anyone who would embrace this message, this truth, and embrace it in faith, that they would be saved. They heard that for themselves, that their lives were changed, that they knew this. He speaks to their own experience in salvation. That when they heard the message, they heard it with faith. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. Rather, they heard the truth of Christ's atoning sacrifice and embraced it. He not only speaks of their experience in salvation, but he speaks of their experience in sanctification next in verse 3. Are you so foolish again? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? In other words, now that, that you receive the Spirit, that the Spirit indwelled you, that, that you were received by the Spirit, and he, he worked in you, are you now trying to work now in the flesh to complete that work? I mean, think about the ridiculousness of that. Like, are, are you, now you're telling, t- trying to tell the Holy Spirit, I got this now. I mean, I, okay, I know the truth. I know the basic truths. Okay, yeah, I can run with this now. That's what I, I just needed that little upbeat of truth. I just needed that, that little kick in the pants. Now I can take this. Yeah, Jesus died for me, and I can do everything now. Like this, that's essentially what he's getting at. Did you now, having restarted and began in the spirit as he worked in you, as he transformed you, are you now completing that work by your own efforts? That's essentially what it's doing, is when you're seeking circumcision or any other right of the law, you're seeking to, to, to transform, to be righteous, to be worthy by your own doing. That's all that they're seeking to do. We must realize as Paul is pointing out here, is that the source of your sanctity, the source of your holiness, is always and always will be in Christ and his gospel. So not only are you saved by the gospel through the work of the Spirit, transforming your heart, but that ongoing work of sanctification, of growing in Christ's likeness, that work is not resting on your own obedience. It's resting fully on the work of Christ through his word, through the ministry of the Spirit, not any work of the law. 
that Paul is here hiding the fact that even not only at the beginning of your salvation experience, but now as you're walking in your salvation experience, you're doing it by the Spirit. It's never something you can accomplish. I mean, you think about you buy a car and you want it to run even more faster, you want to upgrade it, and so you take out the engine. It was never meant to perform without the engine. That's core. Every illustration falls short, but you get the idea. John Calvin once said, if we want to proclaim the gospel aright, then learn not only to speak and declaim, but also to penetrate into consciences so that men may see Christ crucified and that his blood may flow. If you want to, not only if you're talking about the gospel message, not only to speak and proclaim it, but to prick the conscience so that men may see Christ crucified, so that his blood may flow. In other words, we, we, the key to our sanctification is not doing things and growing in this obedience. There's a place for that. We'll get to that. But the key, the crux of our sanctification is knowing fully the full implications of Christ and Christ crucified on your behalf. If we understood the fullness of that believer, life-changing truth, the problem with us is not we don't know enough, it's we don't believe enough. So now are you starting with the Spirit? Are you now trying to perfect in the flesh? That's backwards. I know I didn't start nothing in my flesh. I need the Spirit. I need the truth to transform me. I need to be before him at all times to be transformed to this likeness. And I need to gaze and understand what does the fullness mean that Christ died and I'm unified with him. In your daily battle for Christ's likeness, if you are seeking to grow, to be strengthened, or to mature by any other source than Christ and his gospel, then you are seeking to be perfected in the flesh. And you will always be disappointed. Diving deeper into the experience, he not only highlights these other things, but he highlights their experience in the faith. He talks about here in verse 3, excuse me, verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? We won't get too much into it, but this idea of suffering here it most simply can mean experiences. He translated that NASB in many Bibles translates it suffering, but all, it's generally just speaking, just, these are just experiences, whether good or bad. In the context here, Paul's already talking about these good experiences of receiving the Spirit, the Spirit working in you. So I think also here, he's not just talking about sufferings, but generally they're experiences in the faith. As we'll see right after this, they experience miracles and wonders. So he's saying, did you experience all of these things, whether suffering, whether good things? Did you experience all of these things for nothing? If indeed it was for nothing. Not only their experiences, but their supernatural experiences next. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do that by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? You can read about yourself, about yourself also in Acts 11 through 14, the, the miracles and wonders that were being done now in their midst, having heard the gospel, having come to Christ. There were many wonders, miracles seen in their midst. They saw these things. They knew that this was a work of God, that they didn't deserve this, they didn't work for this, that they didn't have to conjure up some sort of method, some scientific method in order to accomplish these things. They knew this personally, and Paul appealed to that experience, not because it was subjective, but because they knew by their own experience that it was God working in them that not only changed them, but that is changing them and is still working amongst them. And so if that is true, 
then why would you step away from that and try to finish this work in and of yourself? You're going to be defeated at every front. It's pointless. The miracles done among them and in them was by the Spirit. That the Father is the one who bestows gifts to his children. These are not done by works of the law, but rather by hearing with faith. Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. That the work of God, the supernatural work of God, man never works for it. You never work for God's favor. Never work for his saving gift of grace. It's only done by hearing the message of the truth of the gospel and hearing it with faith, believing it is true, not just knowing it, not just mentally ascending to it, but also embracing it in faith. That faith comes from hearing, not from working, but faith from hearing the word of Christ. This also points to the ministry of the Holy Spirit here. That he is the one, ultimately, that Paul is is alluding to. The Holy Spirit believer is the one who not only is working to regenerate you, give you a new life when you come to saving faith, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's indwelling you. That the Spirit is indwelling you, transforming you, even daily sanctifying you, transforming you more into Christ's likeness. This is a supernatural work of God. That God is the one working in you through his Spirit to make you like himself. That this is all a work of the Spirit, not of the law. We know this, brothers and sisters. We know that this was God working in us. We know this from our own experience. They knew this from their experience. So if that was the case, why would we dare think that we could do anything to supplement the finished work of Christ? That's why he says, you foolish Galatians. This is careless thinking. This is laziness. So he not only defends this experientially, but secondly, he he defends it historically. Because their experience is not just the end of the argument. It's it's not the end all. It's only the beginning, because now his defense goes even further as the historical example of Abraham is presented for them. That their experience is, though true and valid because of how it aligns with Scripture, their experience falls short because now Paul supplements it even further with not only just your experience, but look at historically, look at Abraham. Verse 6, even so, just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Key verse there. Now, Paul did not randomly just pick a character in the Old Testament and say, you know, let me start with Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham. But this is strategic thinking on Paul's part. Think about the significance. Out of all the historical examples Paul could have used, why choose Abraham? Why choose Abraham? This is important because it's, it's not only appropriate, but also ironic that, that Paul would present Abraham at the beginning of his theological argument against heresy. Why is that? Because the covenant and the circumcision began with who? Abraham. So I'm just guessing. I'm just, I'm just supposing. Who do you think the Judaizers use as evidence of circumcision? If you want to be of our father faith, like if you want to be of our faith, like our father Abraham, then you need to look like Abraham. Who do you suppose they went to to support their arguments that if you want to be saved, if you want to to grow in the faith, then you need to align like our fathers of the faith. 
For example, Abraham. But Paul, knowing this, shatters this. He says that even with Abraham, that was not the case. That Abraham is not where you stake your argument. That Abraham was not righteous because he was circumcised, but Abraham was righteous. Why? Because of his faith. He shatters this thought quickly that demonstrating that even their father Abraham was righteous, not because of circumcision. And now you can tell he's quoting here the scripture because your Bible may have in verse 6 in all caps, noting an Old Testament reference. But God promised to bless Abraham. And he's quoting here Genesis 15, verse 6, a key verse there in Genesis 15. After God is promising to Abraham, I will bless you, and you don't have any sons right now, you can't have children, but guess what? You look up at the sky, you see the stars in the sky, that many, I will give you that many descendants. That God gave this this ultimate promise, this key covenant with Abraham where it started with him. And having heard this from God himself, how did Abraham respond? He believed God, or he believed in God, and it was credited to him, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This key word reckoned here, it it, it was credit to his count. This was not just, as we established, this was not just the removal of Abraham's guilt, but it was the surplus of righteousness. That Abraham was not only just forgiven of all of his sins, that's not enough, but he was granted righteousness in abundance because he believed in God. So for Paul to go here and refer back to Abraham, he's using this strategically because if you want to go back to where it started from the very beginning, even in the very beginning, man was not justified by covenants, I mean, excuse me, by circumcision or by the works of the law. That from the very beginning, man was justified before a holy God by believing in God in faith. So what was the point of circumcision? It was only a mark. It was not the means of salvation. That one person said it this way, that God established circumcision as a physical sign to identify his people and to isolate them from the idolatrous pagan world around them during the time of the Old Covenant. That circumcision is an external physical act that has no effect on the spiritual work of justification. Now remember that that God gave the sign that God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham, this is also important, that God gave the circumcision, the sign of circumcision to Abraham before or after he was declared righteous. It was after. That even before Abraham was reckoned, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, even before that, before that, before he was circumcised, God declared him as righteous. That long before Long before he was circumcised, the scripture says it clearly that he was declared righteous before God. So even to think or to presuppose that that Abraham was justified because he too was circumcised is in error. Because Abraham himself was righteous long before he was even circumcised. And so based upon this truth, you see here as prime evidence in verse 7 now, Paul gives an imperative, he gives a command based upon this truth of this historical figure of Abraham. Based upon this truth, verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. That because Abraham was justified before God because of his faith, this is the command to you now. Make sure that anyone, that anyone who claims to be a son of Abraham is a son of Abraham because he's a son of faith, not of circumcision. That no work is sufficient. 
So the true sons of Abraham are the true sons who are of faith. This is huge. Because even the Jews at the time of Christ tried to use the example of Abraham to justify their own sinful motives. If you look over, flip over to John chapter 8, as Jesus has an encounter with, with the legalist of the day. In John chapter 8, verse 37, they try to justify themselves that Abraham, that we're of Abraham, therefore we're justified. So who are you? Jesus responds to this, this false truth, this false belief. In verse 37, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Why is that? Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my, I have, which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, huh, wait, hold on. Jesus, you don't understand. I'm Jew, right? So this is their response. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They're claiming Abraham's their father, but Jesus is saying, who is really your father? Satan. That's who your father is. He takes it even further. If you look at verse 44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He crushes them. But even go even further, verse 56, he ends this. That your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You see here, they come to Jesus saying, you don't understand. We have heritage here. We have stake. That from our generation to generation, it was here. But Jesus here is saying, just because you're of his lineage does not mean you are of his true lineage. That just because Abraham may be your great, 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 great grandfather doesn't make you a spiritual son. But the true son of Abraham is one who is of faith. So Paul here, going back to Galatians, is saying just the, thing, just the same thing that Jesus is saying here. Just because you are a physical heritage does not mean anything. But if you are of, of Abraham, make sure you're a true son of Abraham because you're of faith. That those who are of faith are those who are with Abraham. And even more, Jesus is saying here that even Abraham himself, he looked forward to my coming and rejoiced to see my day, as Jesus said. That Abraham looked for and anticipated the coming of the Messiah, Christ. And yet when the Pharisees and the scribes saw the Messiah, they reacted in opposite and rejected him. That's not a true spiritual son of Abraham. He makes the delineation in this whole passage here that there are true physical sons of Abraham. But most importantly, he's saying here is that those who are of faith are the spiritual sons of Abraham. So the question remains, how can one be a true spiritual son of Abraham? It is by believing in the promise of the one to whom Abraham looked forward, in the Christ, the Messiah. Those who are true sons of Abraham are not just sons because they are his biological son, but because they're his spiritual son. And his true spiritual son of Abraham models the faith of Abraham, and that faith is in God. 
I mean, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, that, that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that, circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. That even the true Jews, the physical, the physical descendants of Abraham, if you really want to be his descendants, just because you're born of his descendant, of his line, does not make you a true son. But the one who is a true son of Abraham is one inwardly, who is circumcised on the inside, the heart, which is what the new covenant accomplished. True sons, spiritual sons of Abraham, is what the significance of what Paul is getting at here. Now, of course. We know, looking forward in even Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, I mean, God even discusses he has not rejected his, rejected his people physically. He's not rejected Israel as a whole because he says, has God ever rejected his people? He says, following up to that, may, may it never be, right? The, the key phrase there in, in the book of Romans, may it never be. In other words, of course not. God has not rejected his people, but those even in his people who are from Israel are Israel because they've received the Messiah by faith. That God is not done with his people, but even those who come to faith from his people come to faith through faith in Christ, his Messiah. That God has a marvelous plan for his people, but there has never been a time when any person has been brought to saving relationship by any other means than faith. That all of Abraham's physical seed is not his spiritual seed, but those who are his spiritual seed are his spiritual seed because of faith. So Paul's essential point here is that that salvation is not about earning one's righteousness, as we know, or or by works or by obedience. And in this case, conforming to the Mosaic law, but rather in Christ, everyone, in Christ, everyone, whether Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, they're all one in Christ. They're all level at the foot of the cross. And that's why by the end of this chapter, he makes that case that whether you're male, female, Jew, Gentile, no matter what you are, if you're in Christ, we're all one. So Paul's point here is not to delineate between these two groups. His point here is to say, in order to enter to the door of the kingdom of heaven, you come to the door by grace through faith. That that is the one way. That there is no other way. That no tradition, no system of beliefs, no law, there's nothing you can do to earn it. No circumcision, no dietary restrictions, no nothing you can do. Rather, believe in the one whom he has sent, Christ. So naturally, Paul, he's seeing here the heretical danger of this wicked teaching that is in direct contrast to the sufficient work of Christ. He crushes it. That a true child of Abraham is one who is not like Abraham physically, but like Abraham spiritually. That from the beginning of Israel's history till now, the way one, whether Jew or Gentile, has been declared righteous is by their faith alone. That we're saved by God's unmerited favor and merited favor, his grace, and it's only received by faith, by believing. So, of course, here, hearing this message here, that there is the the teachers, the Judaizers, the teaching that they were bringing in here, it falls flat, that nothing holds up. Because at the end of the day here, that what's at stake here to add anything is to pervert the message of the cross. As Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 2, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. That to supplement anything to that is to say that Christ died in vain. 
That it was worthless. It means nothing because his dying, I had to add to it in order to compensate so that I can be made righteous by me and Christ's work. That's essentially what's being said here. But Paul crushes this, not only experientially, but historically, that Abraham, beginning in the faith there, that he was a man of faith and saved by his faith in Christ. Let's look at this third angle biblically now. Experientially, historically, he he defends it biblically. Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, no, no doubt here, Paul uses scripture previously when he's speaking of Abraham, but his point there was to point out the person, the historical person of Abraham. But here, he's referring now and turning to the use of scriptures. He's quoting now the blessing again given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. But the phrasing is quite interesting in this verse here in chapter 8. Because when he first says the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, when we think on this side of the cross, when we think of the gospel message, we think of the saving work of Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his coming back. When we think of the gospel, we think of that core message, and we should. It's true. But what here, what Paul is saying here is that Scripture preached this gospel message in the beginning. And how is that? that all the families or nations will be blessed. But that's not all. They'll be blessed how? In you. In you. It's extended the same way that it was once spoken when it was received. This salvation is given the same way that Abraham received it, through faith. So how was the gospel preached to Abraham in the beginning? Because when God said that I would bless you and make you a great nation, he said when all the nations will be blessed through you, God already at that time was intending to bless the Gentiles through believing just like Abraham believed in faith. So that those who are blessed along with Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile, They're blessed. All the nations, all people groups will have the opportunity to be saved because they're believing just like Abraham believed. So in you, you'll be saved. This gospel message, though though kind of it's kind of hidden in some aspect, there's a mysterious element to it. It's unfolded later on. But, But also notice here that Paul referred to scripture speaking. Right here, as he begins in verse 8, that he says, Scripture says, Scripture foreseen. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, who is speaking that promise to Abraham? God. That God is speaking to Abraham, saying, I will bless you, and through you all the nations of families will be blessed. God is speaking. But now here, Paul is saying, Scripture is foreseen. That Scripture is speaking here. What's the significance of that? That the New Testament readers, the New Testament writers, in the mind of Paul, in the mind of the New Testament writers, they understood that when Scripture spoke, God spoke. It's a critical text here, the inspiration of Scripture here, that they're equating God's word with Scripture. So when God was speaking, Scripture is being written. When Scripture is speaking, God is speaking. That they're one and the same. That Paul referred to scripture speaking as though God were speaking, so it can be rightly affirmed that what the Bible says, God says. 
This highlights an absolute identification with the scripture, with the words of God in the minds of these writers here. They're seeing it's one and the same. This is the total inspiration of the Bible and its authority here, that when scripture is speaking, God is speaking, even in the Old Testament. So it's not just Jesus' words themselves are the only authority in the Bible. No, all scripture from Genesis to Revelation inspired by the mouth of God. But even more, Paul is using this very inspiration to argue this point that scripture itself was foreseeing the time that Gentiles would be saved and they would be saved not by conforming to the Mosaic law, but be saved by faith in the Messiah to come. This also gives us a peek of the progressive revelation of the Bible. Because now as we look back, we see God's divine revelation, his word, it was being revealed progressively through time. That this gospel message is started here, so, so to speak, in this nut form, and it's growing as scripture is being revealed and progressing through time. That now this blessing that's coming to all people, to all nations, we now see, how is this blessing going to happen? Oh, the person of Christ. Oh, no, oh, he's dying on the cross. He's rising from the grave. Oh, he's drawing all peoples to himself. This is how it's progressively being revealed. And we see the snapshot as the scripture is already foreseeing the future and saying this is how we'll bless all peoples through the one to come eventually. So, of course, Abraham didn't have this full revelation. He didn't have the full revelation that we have now, but he understood that a Messiah was to come. He looked forward to, the, to Christ, and he rejoiced to see his day, as Jesus said. So even here, we see not only the divine revelation progressively unfolding here, but Paul is using this to defend the work that even Scripture itself is attesting that they'll be blessed the same way Abraham's going to be blessed in faith. And so don't miss the sweet subtlety that Paul adds here at the end. He says that in verse 9, so, so then those who are faith are blessed with Abraham. But look how he classifies Abraham. Abraham what? The circumcised? No, no, no. With Abraham, the believer. So everyone will be blessed along with Abraham, the believer, because Abraham was a believer. So the only blessing is to come the same way that Abraham went, through faith. The content of that faith grew and progressed over time, but it was always grace through faith from the very beginning of time. That you are blessed with Abraham. Believer, contemplate that. That this is the blessing given to you in Christ. That if you are in Christ, what are these blessings that God has given you? We we cannot tire them out, but just think about all the blessings that Paul lists in in Ephesians chapter 1. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He lavished on us all wisdom and insight. Even above that, he gave you the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a down payment of the glory to come. Believer, you have been blessed along with Abraham. And it's nothing you did to receive or earn it. That these are the blessings that Paul is getting at. So why stray to another way? I think there is one legitimate question here. This is true, which we know it is. Why did Abraham get circumcised? Why did he get circumcised? Because he was obeying God. 
It wasn't to earn his God's favor. It wasn't to earn his righteousness. It was simple obedience. That scripture also says that true saving faith produces obedience. There is no faith that anyone can claim, you or anyone else can claim any kind of faith that does not produce obedience. That Paul himself articulated this as well to, to, the, to, the, to the Romans in chapter 1 that, to, to bring about the obedience of faith. That faith produces obedience. That true saving faith reacts and grows from that faith in obedience. It's just like James says that faith without works is dead. He's not saying that you are saved in a sense that you are considered worthy because you're righteous in your works, but rather your works vindicate that profession of faith. So if you're saying you're in faith, there's works that should validate, yes, that is true saving faith. It's never meritorious. It's never earning it. So just like your faith, it's saving faith. If it is true faith that is gifted by God, that has embraced the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross in your place, if that is a kind of faith, then it does respond in loving obedience to the one who saved you. So why do you get circumcised? Because obeyed in faith. This is the obedience that he sees here. So it harmonizes perfectly with James as he says faith without works is dead because any faith that claims that faith in the work of the Messiah believes in the Messiah but also seeks to please the Messiah in their obedience. Their obedience is the fruit of it. It doesn't work for it. Beloved, we're we're 2,000 years removed from this context. And it's easy to say, okay, this this is a good passage, but you know what? I'm not really concerned about being strayed and led astray by circumcision, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a struggle for us in 2021, that you know, believers are struggling, should they be circumcised or not to be saved. I don't believe that's going to be our temptation. And I know it's ridiculous, but you know what I think is true and what is a temptation for us? Is even in this day, all that circumcision did was it gave that person confidence that, anything, that, that their works, their doing gives them that sufficient confidence that God is pleased with them. All that circumcision really did was give them some sort of sinful, prideful confidence that now God was pleased with them because of what they did. And not only is that just prideful, and not only is it an offense to the cross of Christ, but it is deceitful. That there are many ways, even believer, that we gain our confidence because of our performance. That we gain our confidence because of how well I've been faithful in coming to church and and being in Bible study. That my obedience, well, look how great I am. That we subtly can get deceived into thinking that any work that I am doing, that because of this work, God is now more pleased with me than he was before. Because all that is essentially saying there is that the work of Christ was not sufficient for him to be pleasing to you in the first place. That circumcision robs not only a confidence, but it really robs the sufficient work of Christ. That if he paid it all, he didn't just pay some of it, he paid all of it. Then what implications does it have for you? This is about any confidence, any trust that you have apart from Christ. That you may believe he exists, you may believe he sent his son, etc., etc. Even if you believe in Christ, but if you're still comforted by any level of performance or righteousness that you have lived, Christ plus anything is nothing. That we can't have faith plus works in any form or fashion. 
Paul Washer said it this way recently. I heard him say, or read him say it, read him, that he stated it. He said, two days ought to control everything in our life. Two days ought to control everything in our life. The day Christ hung upon a cross is a vicarious sacrifice for my sin. And the day that I will stand before God and be judged. Only two days ought to control your life. When Christ hung upon the cross as a vicarious sacrifice in your place. And the day when you stand before God and be judged. Because at the end of the day, any work is like filthy garments in his sight. To my younger folks in the room, this faith here is a personal faith. It's not based upon your mom or dad's faith or your family's faith. But Paul is really getting at the fact that this is a faith of the, in the heart of the one who's received it. Is this your faith? Are you clinging to Christ? Is your confidence in Christ or that you grew up in a Christian household? Or maybe even younger believers who grew up a decently righteous life, no heinous sins. Are you somewhat puffed up by your level of accomplishment in life? Realize God looks at your life and sees his filthy, ragged garments in his sight. Nothing is pleasing to him but his son. So no matter who you are, the only confidence that you have for justification before a holy God is the only work that he accepts, the work of his son on the cross. I want you to contemplate in your own soul this morning. Where is your hope? At the end of the day, where are you staking your confidence? What is your, the constant reflection and refrain of your heart? Is it in anything that you're doing or living or accomplishing? Or is it in the finished work of your Savior? And church, we must hold tightly to this essential truth. Church, we must, this local assembly must hold tightly to this essential truth. That it's not just, this is not just a teaching we use just to kind of build circles. So, okay, you're in this circle, so I'll get out the circle. Yeah, you're not here. This is not about that. This is about life or death. This is core teaching here. As a church body, we must preserve the truth. That I stand with Paul that if I or anyone else stands in this pulpit and brings to you a different gospel than the one that Paul preached, let him be accursed. That we will not stand for anything. We will preserve the purity of the gospel that, 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 that upholds the purity of Christ's sacrifice and the sufficiency of his work. We as a church will embrace that and live by that daily. This is the core message he's getting at. And that's why it's so dangerous that for anyone to have any confidence in anything else, it's not just air. It's apostasy. But we stand grateful for the work of Christ. This is why, this morning in particular, there's no, this theme was not by coincidence, that it's, it's rightly upholding the finished, completed, sufficient, glorious work of Christ that's granted to all in faith. Whoever would receive it by faith, believing the free gift of God, the free gift of salvation, just receive it by faith. That's the glorious message. That's a message you won't find in any other faith, any other religion. That Christ came to save sinners, and all you can do is nothing but receive it by faith. What a wonderful message for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we realize 
how often we fall short, that nothing we can do or ever have done can supplement your completed work. We lift you high because you are the only one worthy of our praise and our adoration and our glory, that it is due you. God, we thank you for your truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.